From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, March 5th. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. and Israel discuss Iran. President Obama stresses diplomacy over war. Prime Minister Netanyahu reminds Americans that Iran sees both nations as a threat. You know, for them, you're the great Satan. We're the little Satan. For them, we are you and you are us. And later, Vladimir Putin cries on the night of his election. So what do Russians make of his tears? I wish it was Bill Clinton's tear, which is a tear of, like, I feel your pain. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Riot police in Moscow today broke up a protest rally against the official result of Russia's presidential election. Hundreds of protesters were arrested. The government says yesterday's vote was easily won by Vladimir Putin with 63 percent of the ballots. But many in Russia's opposition believe the election was rigged, and international observers said the vote was marred by irregularities. The U.S. State Department is urging Russia to investigate all reported violations, but Putin's supporters are rejecting suggestions of widespread fraud. Alexei Pushkov is a pro-Putin member of Russia's parliament. I think there may be some violations, but not only from the side of the leading candidate, but also from some opposition candidates. It has happened before. The question is whether those violations have uh, distorted uh, the result of the ballot. I don't think they had. Clearly, many Russians disagree. Ahead of the election, the world's Laura Lynch reported on a group of Russians who volunteered to monitor the vote in one Moscow district. And today, she asked them how it went. Don't try to tell the thousands of hardy souls that gathered in frigid downtown Moscow today that Vladimir Putin won fair and square. Opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, his voice dripping with derision, led the chant, Russia, yes, Putin, no. They say they want fresh elections and clean campaigning. And in the crowd here was Dmitry Cernin, one of the men who coordinated a grassroots effort to ensure a fraud-free vote in just one district, the district of Danilovsky. All day yesterday, Cernan drove to polling stations like this one, where voters were serenaded by elevator music as they cast their ballots. By late afternoon, he said his monitors had seen only a few cases of potential abuse. There were some cases that looked suspicious, like, for example, at two uh, polling stations, uh, too many people voted uh, with absentee ballots, um, like one-fifth of voters, which is a lot, or maybe more even. Up the stairs at poll number 1706, volunteer monitor Masha Eisen said she hadn't seen any problems either, but she was keeping a close watch on this particular poll. That's because last December, the results of the parliamentary election showed 90% of voters chose the party loyal to Putin. This is incredible. This is, I don't believe in it. This is Moscow. This is not Chechen village, okay? So 90% is something, I mean, 50, 60 could be arguable because this is a district not very liberal in a way that we see people. 
but 90%, it's, it's ridiculous. Eisen and Dmitry Cernan would have to wait and watch many more hours to find out whether anyone fiddled with the results. In fact, they had to wait until about 8 o'clock this morning. After just a few hours of sleep, Cernan sits down with a large mug of coffee at a cafe in the Danilovsky district. His eyes are red-rimmed with fatigue, but he's still staring at poll reports and crunching the numbers. Do you feel like you accomplished your goal of making one yes, clean district? Yes, uh, I, I feel like we at least we tried. Uh, the final results for the district show Putin winning 46 percent, billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov pulling 22 percent of the vote, and communist Gennady Zuganov with 19%. The others finished in single digits. Cernan knows there were problems with absentee ballots, but he believes his group halted any attempts at stuffing ballot boxes or altering poll numbers. Maybe we cannot pre- uh, prevent all the fraud because we cannot change the laws and rules and instructions, but at least we can prevent most of it, or at least... Uh, make sure that the most blatant fraud does not happen. And in poll 1706, it showed about 45% support for Putin, way down from 90. So for Cernan and his band of election brothers and sisters, a small but significant achievement. Now, what do they do next? It's just, it's been a couple of hours since I woke up, so I don't, I don't really know. We haven't given any big thought to it. It's the same question facing thousands of others who stood with Cernan in the freezing cold tonight, condemning Putin and demanding fair elections. The last few months have created a new generation of activists who gave voice to a desire for change. But Putin will become president again in May with the backing of many across Russia. Now the activists need to decide whether they'll transform their ad hoc protests into a permanent part of the Russian political scene. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Moscow. Konstantin Borovoy was a member of the Russian parliament from 1996 to 2000. He's now a member of the opposition in Russia. Konstantin, what was your feeling today when you woke up to the reality that Vladimir Putin will be president for another term? For me, no doubt that... Putin understands very clear that the results of the election was against him and he couldn't win without falsification. And it wasn't real election, but fake elections, so-called elections. And he understands it very clear. That's why he is now in position of protection his power against people, against Russia. Well, independent observers seem to agree with that, uh, that they feel that this election was uh, marked by massive fraud. But what does this mean for the opposition? I mean, you're a member of the opposition. How can how much can the opposition actually do to affect the fact that Putin will remain in power? I think we can do a lot of things. The first of all, we start to protest against massive falsifications. And to demonstrate people that we are fighting against Putin, against his power, against non-democratic wave of Russia. I mean, you you say Putin needs to be protested, the falsification needs to be protested, but isn't Vladimir Putin generally popular in Russia? You're also fighting a lot of people who do support him. Uh, his rating before the elections, just before the election, was on the level of 38, 
42%. It means that in the case of honest election, it will be the next circle. And he could win, no doubt, but we would like to have honest conditions for the political system, honest election. You say that the first thing the opposition can do is to protest more. How far are you willing to protest the outcome of this election? How far can you actually dispute it? We just started today, but we expect to have more and more support from the people. And in that case, we will widely protest against actual situation here in Russia. And we expect that people don't want to live in that type of conditions when our power now is in the hand of thief. In the hands of thieves. Um, you say more protests, you're going to expect more protesters to come out. But um, is there an obvious opposition leader? Is there a replacement for Putin that you have in mind? I don't know. After the creating honest, normal, democratic conditions, we have to create a lot of political parties. We have to create normal parliament. We have to create normal conditions for the elections, for the economy. We have to replace a lot of people who are now in jail. A lot of things have to be done. Today, we had a lot of problems with policemen, with our protests. No one knows what can happen in the nearest future. Konstantin Borovoy, a former member of the Russian parliament, now a member of the opposition. Very good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. The first world leader to go on trial because of the 2008 global economic crisis appeared in court today. He is Ger Horde, former prime minister of Iceland. He pleaded not guilty to negligence in a Reykjavik court today. Horde is accused of not doing enough to ensure the financial stability of Icelandic banks that then collapsed and dragged the rest of the country down with them. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. Former Prime Minister Horde said before a special tribunal today that his conscience was clear. It wasn't his fault, he said, that Iceland's three main banks collapsed. Here's how the banks got in trouble. First, they borrowed heavily, recounts Trevor Williams of Lloyds Bank Corporate Markets in London. International flows of money into Iceland were huge. They used that money to leverage. They bought a lot of assets overseas. These assets fell dramatically in value. As did Iceland's currency, the krona, which plunged by 50 percent. That left thousands of Icelanders exposed because many of them held loans and mortgages pegged to foreign currencies. Iceland's three main banks were finished. Their collective debt, 13 times Iceland the country's GDP. Creditors at home and overseas have been clamoring for repayment since. For years now, Icelanders have been debating who should pay, both literally and before the courts of justice. A handful of bankers are currently indicted or on trial for their role in the debacle. But Horde is the first political leader to face a tribunal. The head of his conservative independence party, Jarne Benediktsson, says charging the former leader was a mistake because there was never criminal intent. And I think all must agree that no one person can be held liable for what happened. We uh, were hit by an international crisis in Iceland, and we did what was possible to do. I think most of the fault lies with individuals. 
in the financial sector, that is to say. Benedictson says, if anything, Horde should be investigated, not prosecuted. But Member of Parliament Birgitta Jonsdotter says a lengthy investigation is precisely what landed Horde in the dock. A parliamentary committee found that Horde knew for several weeks that the banks were in trouble, but that he failed to act. Jonsdotter says the former prime minister is on trial as much for his inaction as for his actions. And we feel that this will set a precedent to future governments and to future uh, bureaucrats as well. Because it's been a tradition here that some people think that they're above the law and it is very unhealthy in a small society like this. Iceland's population is just over 300,000. But though their former head of state could get up to two years in jail, people are hardly celebrating. So says Icelandic journalist Gunnar Hrafn Johnson. They don't really feel things are getting better, even though they look better on paper for, for businesses and government. So I think there's a fundamental distrust of everything to do with politics and banks. We've been burned pretty badly, so it's probably going to take some time for people to sort of get used to the idea that things aren't actually going to spiral downward forever, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Iceland's corona has proven unstable since the 2008 crash, so much so that when Canada's ambassador to Iceland quipped that the island nation might do well to adopt the Canadian dollar, Iceland's foreign minister said the government was open to the idea. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. You may be listening to us on the radio, but check this out. You can take the world with you wherever you go by downloading the PRI mobile app. It's available from the Android and iPhone stores. As for what you hear on the show, you can comment on any story on the world at theworld.org. If you'd rather email us, our address is theworld at pri.org. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our planet is full of things in motion, and all of that motion carries energy. People around the globe are rushing to find ways to capture as much of that energy as possible and turn it into clean sources of electricity. Think of the growing use of power from the wind and ocean waves. Well, what about capturing the power of human bodies in motion? For instance, the energy expended in a footstep. You wouldn't think it's much, but all of our steps together can really add up. Now one British company thinks it's found a way to turn some of those footsteps into electricity. The world's Clark Boyd has our report. It's between classes at the Simon Langton School for Boys in Canterbury. The halls fill up quickly with students. Their footsteps pound the floor. There's a lot of youthful energy in those footsteps. Most of that energy is wasted, just dissipating into the floor tiles. But in one hallway, there's something new on the ground. It's got some magical flooring down here. It's, um, basically, it's pavement, which actually generates energy. Daniel Pledger is a teacher at the school. He stamps on a tile, and a white LED light in the center glows brightly. Rows of LEDs on a nearby exhibit also light up. Over a 1,000 students will uh, pass this corridor a number of times a day, so the energy must be incredible that they create. Can you imagine if there were more of these slabs across the school, the energy that we could produce? Such is the dream of PaveGen, the London-based company that installed the floor here in Canterbury a little more than a year ago. It was the first field test for a new energy harvesting system that PaveGen has created. 
Lawrence Kimball Cook is PaveGen's founder and CEO. A couple of years ago, while studying industrial design, he became intrigued by a question. A typical person walks over 50 million steps in their lifetime, and what if you could take a small amount of energy from every step? and convert that into electricity that can then be used for applications like street lighting. And so Kimball Cook brought a team together and set out to create the PaveGen Slab, a rubberized tile that converts footsteps into electricity. On a small scale, says Kimball Cook, one day's worth of foot traffic over a few slabs could power one street light overnight. But Kimball Cook is thinking much bigger. Say 4,000 people in a typical office block, there'll also be visitors to that block. So you're actually looking at a tremendous level of footfall in the key entrance areas. Of course, the idea of turning human energy into electricity is nothing new. Think of the dynamo on a bicycle tire that powers the lights when you pedal. But getting useful amounts of energy from footsteps is a good deal harder. The challenge is to capture the quickly released energy of footsteps, store it, and even out the current. After all, you don't want lights that just flash on and off. PaveGen seems to have made this work, although exactly how is a closely guarded secret. Kimball Cook will only say that the system involves what's called piezoelectricity. That's where a crystal, quartz for instance, will produce a charge if pressure is applied. Kimball Cook says the company's breakthrough was to make a piezoelectric system produce significant energy from footsteps. People say, hold on, does this work? They stood in the product and seen it, and they said... I don't believe this works because there's no way this amount of light can be emitted from one footstep. And we're there laughing because we have made it work. But not everyone's been so lucky. A few years back, a Dutch company called Greenpeak was working on ways to harvest the energy from clicking a TV remote to, well, help power the remote. Case Lynx is Greenpeak's CEO. What they really found out is that the way the energy was provided is not very useful for electronics. In other words, batteries were still cheaper. But, Link says, he's intrigued by the idea of PaveGen's floor slabs. The real question is not so much, is the technology possible, is it economically feasible? In other words, will it be you know, just one interesting project uh, in one place, or will it become mainstream and available that everybody has it in his yard, so to say? Those big issues of cost, scale, and practicality are front and center for PaveGen. Think about what one of the company's slabs might be subjected to, says Lawrence Kimball Cook, outdoors, under real-life conditions. It's getting trampled on by people every day. It's got extreme weather conditions. So you've got some really big hurdles to overcome there. But challenges aside, the promise of cheaper, cleaner electricity through footsteps is an intriguing one. PaveGen did an installation recently at the World Economic Forum in Davos. But its first big field test will come this summer at the London Olympics. This is the Westfield Stratford Shopping Centre, one of Europe's biggest and busiest urban shopping malls. PaveGen will place tiles on one of the main pedestrian thoroughfares leading into nearby London Olympic Park. Depending on the foot traffic, the company hopes its tiles might be able to power the mall's entire lighting system. And with all those Olympic events, PaveGen should get a reality check on the durability of its tiles. The company hopes an average tile will grab the energy of 20 million footsteps before wearing out. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, London. Here's another story about widely available energy. If you've got lots of ice and wind, the World Championships of Ice and Snow Sailing took place last week at Chain Lake 
near St. Ignace, Michigan. I know, I miss them too. Ice and snow sailing is a very creative sort of sport. Athletes basically windsurf, pulled by sails or kites, across a frozen surface, gliding on skates or skis or snowboards. The people who've traveled to Michigan for the championships came from all over the globe. Producer Jake Warga spoke to a few competitors, including these three who introduced themselves in both their native languages and English. Man sauc Richards Liepiņš, uh, un es nodarbojos ar windsurfingu ziemā un vasarā. My name is Richard, I came from Latvia. We are doing slalom race here for Visa Championship. In Latvia, we really live with uh, similar conditions like here in St. Ignace. Many people have heard that windsurfing is not a sport, it's a lifestyle. And uh, I definitely like winter much more since I got possibility to do my hobby in winter, winter time. Actually, I am third time already in the United States. Of course, America is huge and uh, fabulous. Of course, we took some extra days and way here and way back to, to, to see a bit more from America. And people actually make America. Yeah, and I met those people here doing the same hobby. That's, that's cool. My name is Dick Tilberg. I come from Stockholm, Sverige. My name is Dick Tilberg. I live in the middle of Sweden, close to Stockholm. <laughs> I'm uh, not the youngest, but p- probably one of the two eldest. I'm 69. <laughs> it takes a lot of experience to, to be good at the sport. <laughs> in Sweden, anyway, it started a long time ago. It started 120 years ago. It started 1890. This kind of uh, transportation was the fastest way of moving on Earth. So in Stockholm... The biggest club had over 10,000 members. It started 1890, but it has steadily been growing. As long as we have ice, it grows. Buenos días a todo al pueblo de Santo Ignacio. Mi nombre es William Acosta. Soy original de Cuba. Okay, well, my name is William Acosta. I'm from Cuba, living in Montreal. Well, actually, I'm the world champion in snowboard, so I won. That's it. The Cuban guy. I melt all the snow here, <laughs> very fast. <laughs> Winter is something I, I never saw before in my life. Uh, the first time was I was like a child. I was playing with the snow. I don't know what to do. I was a slide all over like a little kid. Uh, you only use the wind, so it's no motor, not, no diesel or whatever involved. It's only the wind, so it's very green as far. I love winter. Winter is a, is a magical thing. It's really a magical thing. It's fantastic. Thanks to Jake Warga, who ventured out on the ice and near St. Ignace, Michigan, and nearly froze his fingers recording those interviews. You can see his photographs of the event at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Still ahead, a city in Turkey with a fading European character. You could walk through seven neighborhoods within the space of an hour, but it'd be like walking through seven countries because each neighborhood reflected the architecture, the cuisine, the culture of that community. That's coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama welcomed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the White House today. The two leaders spoke briefly to reporters about Iran. Suspicion that Iran is developing a nuclear weapon has led to calls in Israel for a preemptive military strike. Today, President Obama reiterated that all options are on the table, but he also said he'd prefer to give economic sanctions and diplomacy time to work. Netanyahu stressed Israel's right to defend itself and his country's close relationship with the United States. Iran's leaders know that, too. You know, for them, you're the great Satan. We're the little Satan. For them, we are you and you are us. And you know something, Mr. President? At least on this last point... I think they're right. We are you, and you are us. We're together. Back home in Israel, Netanyahu faces mixed opinions about a possible preemptive attack on Iran. A new poll from the University of Maryland says only 19 percent of Israelis support attacking Iran without the blessing of the U.S. Dalia Shendlin says she's not surprised by those numbers. She's an independent pollster in Tel Aviv. Shendlin says Israelis have developed an increasingly pragmatic view of the issue. They're saying, basically, let's not go at this unilaterally. The Israelis are realistic about where where that would lead. The same poll, by the way, shows that uh, a very clear minority of Israelis think that such a strike would actually do anything that would really dramatically set back or cancel out Iran's program. So, I mean, the thing is, Israelis are quite skeptical about what, uh, you know, a unilateral strike would actually accomplish. Uh, I think they feel much safer in terms of the effectiveness and in terms of Israel's position in the world to move ahead on this kind of thing with the U.S. And I think in general, they're not necessarily convinced that war is the way to go. So in that polling question, the key condition would seem to be that Israelis don't support an attack on Iran without U.S. support. Now, if the U.S. were backing Israel... You still have only under half the population, 42 percent, who support it in that case. In other words, at this point, what we're seeing is the leadership that's really talking about this and, you know, putting this option on the table in a much more forceful way than the public. You know, so there's a bit of an inconsistency here. And by the way, that's not the first time we're seeing this kind of inconsistency between the leadership and the public in Israel. Mm. The public being a little more restrained, a little more pragmatic, um, you know, a little more concerned for Israel's position in the world and a little more focused on uh, multilateralism and, you know, having the cooperation with the rest of the world where the government, you know, kind of t- taking a more hardline approach. So if many Israelis see uh, President Obama as more moderate than their own leaders on the Iran issue, does that mean uh, Netanyahu and his more hawkish position are losing ground among Israelis? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I think Israelis, it's a, you know, they're a little bit caught in between. They, they certainly realize that Obama is more restrained, and I think that they see him as measured and balanced. But I, I think that they, are, that they know that there's room for both. I think that they understand that there's room for Obama's sort of measured, restrained, you know, let's see how the diplomatic side works and the, and the sanctions. But I think that they're perfectly happy they have someone like Netanyahu in office who, who carries the hardline torch on the issue. Isn't that kind of an odd disconnect on a seriously consequential issue, though? Well, I think that, no, I don't think it's really a disconnect in people's minds. Again, it's not that they are overwhelmingly in favor of Obama's policy. It's more that I think that they appreciate that they have a balance right now mm. between uh, the possibility of, you know, the more restrained position. Certainly, Israelis would rather avoid war. I don't think there's any great illusions that if there was a strike, there would be a counterstrike. And if you do see a contradiction there, and I mean, I'm not sure if it's a contradiction or not, because, again, I think Israelis see it more as a balance, uh, maybe even a complementary relationship between the two. Mm. 
Israelis have faced existential crises since even before the founding of the state of Israel. In recent history, it was Iraq with scuds in the 80s and 90s. Before that, it was Syria. How does Iran getting a nuclear bomb compare with past crises, do you think? I mean, you know, it's hard to measure in hindsight, but I mean, I definitely think that Israel's used to the notion of an existential threat. It's part of our lives all the time. Um, for Israeli Jews, it's a very, very prominent feature of, you know, of it informs pretty much everything in their lives. There's always the threat that dominates the public discourse. So right now, it feels really big because it's Iran and we're talking about nuclear weapons. But I feel like at each phase during each decade when there was some major existential threat, each threat was viewed as a potential existential threat. And the truth is, I think among Israelis, especially certainly from what we're seeing in the poll numbers over the last couple of years, is that they're becoming in some ways increasingly resilient towards the threat itself. So I sort of feel like every decade we have the existential threat, um, and then the resilience grows, and Israelis sort of say to themselves, oh, yes, this is the threat. We will be able to cope with it eventually. And, you know, and it becomes assimilated into the way we think. Independent pollster Dalia Shendlin speaking with us from Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For today's GeoQuiz, we head for Turkey's long coastline along the Aegean Sea. We're looking for Turkey's third biggest city. It ranks behind Istanbul and the capital Ankara in population. In ancient times, it was a Greek city known as Smyrna. The Ottomans took it over in the 15th century. Today, it's considered Turkey's most European city. Visitors can sip a cappuccino while gazing out over the Aegean from a cafe along the city's wide promenade. Locals call it the Cordon. We'll hear more about this Turkish city's European flavor when we come back with the answer in just a few minutes. English is the predominant language of global business and diplomacy. And though there's talk of America's declining influence in the world, lots of people still want to learn English. But in Malaysia, English appears to be on the decline. Some say it's a victim of rising nationalism in the former British colony. Now some families who want their children to learn English are taking drastic measures. Jennifer Pak reports from the southern Malaysian state of Johor. It's 4.30 in the morning. I'm in Johor Bahru, a city way down south in Malaysia. I'm up this early because every morning, this minivan we're in takes 12 children to their school. But this is not your typical school run. It's a two-hour journey across an international border to Singapore. These children are going to school in a different country just so they can learn good English. Sometimes very difficult, sometimes very easy. Ayi Han has been making this bus trip for three years since he was six. He's among the 15,000 students who go to school in Singapore, where English is the main language. It's grueling, but his mother Shirley Chua says it's worth it. Most of what's written in science and math is in English, she tells me. So it's essential that my son be fluent in the language. And Chua, like many parents, doesn't trust Malaysia's schools to teach him English. 
Malaysian students may know the latest American pop songs, but many at this primary school in Kuala Lumpur would struggle to have a simple conversation in English. The government began phasing out English as the language of teaching after Malaysia gained independence from the British. By the early 1980s, most students were learning in the national language of Malay or Bahasa. As a result, Malaysian graduates became less employable in the IT sector in the region, says analyst On Kian Ming. We've seen a drastic reduction in the standard of English in, the, in our country, not just among the students, but I think among the, the teachers as well. And that made the government worry that Malaysia would lose its competitive edge. So in 2003, the government issued a new policy: schools should teach science and math classes in English. Almost overnight, students who were learning these core subjects in their native Malay were asked to relearn the technical terms in English. It's been an incredible challenge for students to tackle these key subjects in what is essentially a foreign language. Muhammad Faiz admits he is failing science. Of course, I'd like to be taught in Malay. He tells me, "It's our national language here." So many students are falling behind in science and maths that the government declared the English policy a failure. As of this year, science and math classes will start to be taught in Malay again for those entering the first grade. The government also plans to expand English language hours in the curriculum. Kari Jamaluddin is a government politician. He says English remains critical for Malaysia. No, absolutely, it's the lingua franca of the world today. It's the language of commerce. It's the language of international trade. But the question is, how do you teach them English? But some critics say the policy change devalues English here. Wan Saiful Wan Jan is with the independent think tank, the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs. He worries that the change is driven by nationalists who want to increase the use of the Malay language. If you look at daily life, there are many instances where the use of English is sort of being discouraged. You know, people are beginning to say that if you speak English, this is elitist. For example, this is being propagated among the population by the Malay nationalists. He says those who believe that English is important for their children's future either send their kids to expensive private schools or to Singapore. Back on the school bus, the driver drops off all 12 children in Singapore on time. Uncle Gan, as he is known to the children, is heading straight back to Malaysia to pick up more students. Ah, because students are increasing, the bus cannot stay up. It will increase the bus. There are many families who want to send their children to school in Singapore. He tells me, that's why he recently bought four more minivans and hired drivers just to keep up with the demand. For the world, I'm Jennifer Pack in Southern Johor State, Malaysia. Our next story explores another kind of European legacy. The setting is Turkey's most European city, the one we asked you to name in our geo quiz. The answer is Izmir. The city has gone through many transformations in its long history, and part of what it is today was shaped by the Levantines. They were Europeans who settled in the Ottoman Empire centuries ago. The name also applies to their descendants still in the city today. Matthew Brunwasser visited Izmir and sent us this report. The center of Izmir is filled with stylish outdoor cafes, giving the place its European feel. Andrew Symes, born and raised in Izmir, is proud to be a Levantine. His mother's family came from Italy, and his father's came 200 years ago from Britain. My father's side of the family first arrived to build the railways here in Turkey. They worked for that for two generations. 
And after the railways were complete, they moved on to tobacco, which was also a typical Levantine business. And I'm um, a third-generation tobacco dealer, trying to keep up the family tradition. The Levantines were not your typical immigrants. Generally from the upper, educated and professional classes in Europe, they were lured to the Ottoman Empire with special tax breaks, given control over their own communities, their own police, and even their own courts. The Levantines were part of the ethnic mosaic which made the Ottoman Empire multicultural and rich. Izmir was the empire's most cosmopolitan city, with cohesive communities of English, French, Italian, Greeks, Jews, Armenians, and Turks. You could walk through seven neighborhoods within the space of an hour, but it'd be like walking through seven countries because each neighborhood reflected the architecture, the cuisine, the culture of that community. You know, I've been told from my, my grandfather, who speaks all those languages, he, he would walk maybe a mile and have to speak three or four languages within that mile because he was walking through three or four different communities. The name Levantine comes from the French word Levant, for rising. It refers to the Europeans, mainly Catholics, who went east where the sun rises to what was then the Ottoman Empire to seek their fortunes. With services at St. John's Cathedral in Turkish, English, and Italian, Izmir might seem multicultural, and it is to some extent, but locals say it's nothing like it was back in the Ottoman times. Roland Ricicci, a Maltese Levantine industrialist who's active in the community, says Levantines have done a lot for Izmir, which has repaid them well. And here our grand-grandfathers make so many things. Railways, trades, industry, and remain here at Izmir. Good weather, sea, sun. But he's pessimistic about the continuation of Christianity in these lands. Turkicization has changed what used to be a multi-ethnic Anatolia. He says there are practically no Catholics left. It's finished. No community. Here is the only community who resists. It's not easy either for Fortunato Morezia, an Italian-French Levantine. I speak eight languages, but I have an accent in each one. Even as modern Turkey glorifies its Ottoman past, there is almost no emphasis on its multi-ethnic character. Instead, the modern Turkish Republic has promoted a narrow idea of Turkishness, Morezia says he can feel how Turks are forgetting not just the Levantines, but that anyone besides ethnic Turks have ever lived here. The new generation of Turkish are now very surprised when we are speaking Turkish and we say, I am Italian, because they don't know, the new generation don't know this history. Sitting in the outdoor cafe, Andrew Syme says special taxes on non-Muslims ethnic pogroms, Turkish nationalism, and an us-versus-them mentality have pushed the Levantines away. There are some 1,000 Levantines remaining in Turkey. We have barely enough people to survive as a community. Honestly, I, I can't see a future. You could say maybe we're the last of the Mohicans here. But uh, we'll go down, I guess, in history as, uh, as a vanished community. It's, uh, it's sad, but uh, it's the truth. I hope we're, we're remembered in a good way. Turkey has become more open to ethnic and religious minorities in recent years, but only after most have dwindled to numbers so small that they are no longer considered a threat. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Izmir, Turkey. We have a slideshow on Izmir and its Levantine residents at theworld.org.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Dear friends, first I want to thank all citizens of Russia who took part in today's election for the President of the Russian Federation. Special thanks, of course, to those That's Vladimir Putin thanking the citizens of Russia for choosing him as their president once again. Putin's victory in yesterday's election wasn't a surprise, but many Kremlin watchers were shocked to see that Putin was tearing up at last night's victory rally in Moscow. Yeah, Putin cried. It's a big change for a leader who's cultivated an image of a tough guy action hero. The world's Arun Roth has more. World leaders walk a tightrope when it comes to displays of emotion. An army of pundits is ready to grade every word, every gesture. Is it too angry, too awkward, too weak? Crying, especially for a man, would seem to fall into that last category. Initially, Vladimir Putin appeared to struggle for an explanation. Putin claimed it was an icy gust of wind that brought tears to his eyes at Sunday's victory rally. When a reporter said, so the tears weren't real, Putin responded they were real, but due to the wind. (laughs) This probably was not Vladimir Putin's musky moment. Edward Muskie is said to have lost the Democratic presidential nomination in 1972 for crying over character attacks on his wife, though Muskie, like Putin, blamed the weather for his tears. But House Speaker John Boehner has been nicknamed Weeper of the House for his tendency to blubber at everything from golf tournaments to honoring old astronauts, and it doesn't seem to have hurt him with his constituents. But a survey of weeping U.S. politicians may not say much about Putin's tears. I wish it was Bill Clinton's tear, which is a tear of like, I feel your pain, but I doubt that was of that nature. Svetlana Boym is an expert on Russian culture and the author of The Future of Nostalgia. In Russian culture, there is a very interesting expression, sparse masculine tear, skupaya murskaya sliza. And many heroes of Soviet novels were men of steel, yet they would often stoically combat those moments of emotion in themselves. And occasionally this sparse, masculine tear would appear on their cheek. So it struck me that Putin's tear was of that nature. Boym says Putin's show of emotion appears much more shocking to Americans. Foreign newspapers and foreign media is making much more out of the tear than the Russian media. But social media is a different story. What Putin was crying about, and whether it was authentic or a stunt, has become a hot topic on Twitter. Boym says the level of irreverence is striking compared to the past. In the free-for-all, Russians are assigning the tear whatever meaning they want— Some say Putin is crying because he knew he really lost the election or because the Botox is leaking from the aging leader's face. Countless others played on the notion that with six more years of Putin, they should be the ones crying. For The World, I'm Arun Roth. No hankies needed for our global hit segment today. It focuses on a traditional Korean musical instrument that looks a lot like a lute, except it's six feet long. You put it on your lap, if you can, and pluck the strings with a thin reed. Reporter Lonnie Shavelson introduces us to perhaps the instrument's most dedicated champion. Composer Jin Hee Kim's instrument of choice is the kumungo. It dates back to 4th century Korea. Korean music is based on ritual, shamanism, Buddhism, Confucianism. Rituals means they're very meditative energy. And so the kumungo remained as a ritual instrument through 1,500 years on the Korean peninsula until 1910, when Japan invaded. 
Japanese trying to destroy your identity, Korean identity, language, and all the culture. Musicians were scattered every direction, and they, they couldn't really get together to create any kind of music or preserve any traditional music at that time. Instead, Japanese taught us Western tune, Western music, Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, on and on. Japan surrendered control of Korea in 1945. But the Americans in the Korean War brought in their music in 1950. Goodbye, Maria. I'm off to Korea. the sea. Thirty years after that war ended, when a young Jin Hee Kim began studying music at Seoul University, Korea's obsession with Western music remained. Western-style orchestras, says Kim, paid musicians twice what traditional Korean orchestras paid. I hate that. I really didn't agree with that. And so she stubbornly focused her attention and talent on the traditional kumungo. And if I carry this kumungo on the street, the ordinary people would stop me and say, what is this? I said kumungo. And, you know, they don't just give you really respect. Korean music was despised by own people. They worship to Western music. Undaunted, Kim set out to win respect for Korean traditional music, both in Korea and the West. I wanted to have Korean music and the Western music treated equal. My mission was to bring these two cultures together. So Kim brought the Kamungo to the West. She's been in the U.S. now for more than 30 years, composing traditional Kamungo styles into Western music. She performed last month at Stanford University's Pan-Asian Music Festival with her symphonic composition about planet Earth as it flies through space. It's called Eternal Rock. So when I wrote Eternal Rock, I tried to understand what actually Western scientists thinking about this space at the moment. Because the Korean court music especially, based on cosmology, all relate to yin and yang. And as we know, now universe, the gravity is shifting. And the dark energy pushing farther and farther and the universe is extending. Kim offers another way of approaching Korean music. Korean food is very spicy. When you tried Korean food for the first time, it's very strange, too hot and uncomfortable. But actually, when you try second time, it's interesting. And third time, fourth time, you might really like it. And that's the way I approach the Korean music on the notes, spices. But have Kim's modern symphonic arrangements for the Kumungo gained the respect she's sought only by squeezing it into a Western style? She says no. The Kumungo's ancient Eastern meditative sound, she says, now also brings the souls of Western musicians to the tips of their fingers. For The World, I'm Lonnie Shabelson. You can see the six-foot-long Kumungo played live with all of its spicy notes, as composer Jin Hee Kim describes them. That's at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.